Hello, and welcome to Legal Aid of West Virginia's podcast. I'm Clint Adams, Legal Director of Legal Aid of West Virginia. In this episode, we will be discussing wills and estates. As every good lawyer likes to start something like this, every time we like to talk, we want to give a disclaimer, so we'll do that right now. Legal Aid of West Virginia is a nonprofit law firm providing legal services and advocacy to vulnerable West Virginians. This podcast is presented to bring relevant and current information. All information is current at the time this podcast is published. Our guest attorneys are licensed to practice law in the state of West Virginia, and this information relates only to the law in the state of West Virginia, and it's provided for informational purposes only. While our host and guest are attorneys, the information presented is legal information, and it will not take the place of an attorney-client relationship. You should speak with an attorney about your specific situation. As noted, I am Clint Adams. I'm your host, and this time we're going to be talking with Bill Saviors about wills and estates. Uh, Bill is an attorney. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Clint. It's a pleasure to have you here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I used to work for Dominion as a corporate attorney, and after I retired in 2004, I started uh, working with legal aid, doing some pro bono activity. And since then, basically, I've been working with a number of people at legal aid in Harrison County and Doddridge County to help in wills, estates, and other types of issues that come up that uh, require pro bono treatment. Now, there's a big fancy Latin word that you use. We lawyers love to speak in Latin. What does pro bono mean? It means for the good of other people, and we don't charge for that. Right. So so you volunteer your time with Legal Aid of West Virginia, and we connect you uh, with clients who need some of the wills and, and estates um, advice or assistance in drafting one. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Sounds great. Um, and you worked in Dominion for a long time. How is that different from doing pro bono work? Well, that is kind of different because people look at you wanting an answer immediately. And there are many times when you can't give them an answer immediately. And then when you do give them an answer, they don't like it because they didn't tell you about why they were trying to do it. <laughs> so you just told them you can't do that issue. And they said, well, what can I do? And then you, you say, well, you can do A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. And they go, well, why didn't you tell me that in the first place? And you say, well, you didn't ask in the first place. <laughs> so that's sometimes you, you got to think about what the end objective is whenever you're practicing. Absolutely. And that comes that becomes very relevant, too, when we talk about wills and estates, right? Can you decide what property is going to be probated or not probated whenever you die? Yes, because probate and non-probate items are really definitive. For instance, if you have a piece of real estate that's jointly with the right of survivorship with your wife and you die, your wife gets it immediately. It's a non-probate item. It won't go through the will. It goes immediately with regard uh, to, you know, inheritance by virtue of the deed itself. So when we talk about probate, that's a fancy lawyer word that we use. It means basically the stuff that is your stuff that you couldn't take with you when you died. And that stuff has to go through the administration of a will or the administration of an estate somehow. Do I understand that correctly? Yes. Okay. Yes. And then when we talk about non-probate, those are things that you would own that the moment that you die, those automatically become someone else's property. That's correct. Like a joint bank account, um, a beneficiary on an insurance policy, all of those types of things. 
So as a as a person, as you're preparing your estate or you're thinking through this or you're trying to do some end of life planning or you're just trying to be proactive if you have children or anything for any reason like that. What steps would you recommend someone takes to to review the property that they have? None of it they're going to get take with them, right? I mean, we're clear oh, about right. that. Yeah, we're clear about that. <laughs> None of it's going with you. So what are you going to do with it? What advice would you give to someone as they're thinking through that? One of the big issues are what are your debts and what are the outstanding amounts of money that you're going to owe if you would die at a particular time now or if you're planning to take out a new mortgage in the future? And how are you going to deal with that? The other issue is, uh, and a very interesting one, is if you have children or relatives that may need money in the future, either for education, that sort of stuff, you might be thinking about setting up a trust fund that could be either financed by an insurance policy or financed by your will or even financed uh, prior to death. You just make a contribution into the trust fund and, and that's in the trust fund and is no longer your property. So we talk about we can't take the property with us. The good news is we don't have to take the debts with us either. But the property that we have whenever we die will have to make good for the debts in many situations, correct? In many situations, if you own it at the time of death. Of course, if it's in a trust fund or as a beneficiary in an insurance policy, then the people who you owe money to can't get it. Now, on the other hand, you've got to be careful because if you have a benefit, an insurance policy and the beneficiary dies and you forget to change the beneficiary, then that money, since there is no beneficiary, will come to your estate and will be subject to creditors. So if you have a life insurance policy, it's important not only to set up your beneficiary, but to set up the alternate beneficiaries as well. Absolutely. Because most insurance policies will allow you to do that. And you want to make sure that you're proactive in doing that because oftentimes the person you're going to list may be your spouse. And if you list your spouse and you have a, you know, God forbid, a car accident or something like that where you die simultaneously or within a very short period of each other, then that may create complications with a will process. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. So we've talked about the probate assets, which are the things that are going to have to go through the estate, and then the non-probate. Can you give – you gave some examples, certainly the life insurance policies. We talked about joint bank accounts. Are there other things provided for in, in West Virginia law that then um, become non-probate assets? Well, yes, like a vehicle that's owned jointly, uh, any accounts that are owned, have, uh, are owned jointly. Um, sometimes people don't want to do joint accounts and that's, you know, that's fine. That's up to how you want to work your estate while you're alive. One thing, these things can be pretty complex. So you really might want to talk with an attorney because you can put a survivor on your account or that can have different legal implications. Right. Um, so you want to make sure that you and, talk through that. Go and ahead. different institutions have different methodologies and ways of ha helping people deal with that. And they may be different from bank to bank or, you know, from a trust fund to different different other um, accounts that you may have. Now, one thing that we've heard about, people will say they give someone the lifetime rights to property. What does that mean in the law? Well, that's a life estate. So uh, if you own the property, then you've given a life estate to that person and it's valid for their life, not yours. 
So if you die and the person who has a life estate on your property, they will still have that life estate and, and can use it until they die. And then when they die, it goes back to the remainder. The remainder is the person that has the property after the life estate expires. So if, if I want to give my daughter, transfer to her the remainder interest and I keep the life estate for myself, then I get to stay there and I have complete control of the property as long as I'm alive. Is that correct? That's correct. Even, even if I wanted to evict her, if she was living on the same property with me and I wanted to file an eviction against my daughter as, as a life tenant, then I would have the right to do that. Correct. Um, but now let's say I had a falling out with my daughter after I gave her uh, the remainder interest and I don't want her to have the property anymore. What can I do? At that point, your daughter has to sell it back to you. <laughs> so if we've had a falling out, that might not happen. So once you transfer a, a, an interest in the property like that, then you can't go back and, and uh, revoke it. No. The uh, the other issue is if you retain the remainder and have somebody else with a life estate, you can sell your remainder and that will take the property out of your name and you will you won't be able to get it back. Right. Now, there's this uh, other thing called a transfer at death deed. Um, yeah. how, how is that different than giving someone a, a life estate in property? Uh, that's different in the sense that it allows you to put together a deed transfer the property, and it has to say uh, deed at the end of life in it specifically, you file it at the county courthouse in which the property exists. And at your death, that automatically happens as if it were a non-probate asset. It doesn't have to go through a will. It takes effect immediately by law in West Virginia. However, the nice thing about that is that you can revoke prior to your death, you can revoke that deed, sell it, do whatever you want with it. And that deed is not effective at the time of death if you don't own the property any further. That makes a lot of sense for a number of people because they can plan ahead and you know have a deed at the time of death, file it at the courthouse. And if a problem comes up and they need to sell the property, they need to move, or for some other reason, they can do that without uh, having a problem about writing something up or or uh, writing that that will's no longer effective because if you don't own the property at time of death, there's no transfer and you don't have to cancel it. You still have the right to sell it or, or give it away, however you want to do that. And if the property no longer is yours at the time of death, then that deed is no longer effective. So we've talked about how things will pass then if you set them up as non-probates and you have your joint accounts and things like that. The, you know, the, there may be things that that you can't set up that way or things that that um, that would be be considered probate assets. What happens with probate assets? What happens with the things that die that aren't already earmarked as already having passed to somebody else? Well, that's called intestacy. And that means, in a sense, that you don't have a testament, that is to say, a will. So if you don't have a will, or if you did have a will, is destroyed, burned, or gone, and they can't find it, then you are intestate, and you die without a will, and it goes in accordance with the law of West Virginia. And generally that, you know, there's it's complicated depending upon who your uh, your relatives are and who, who the people are who survive you. But if you're married, it will go to your wife if she's alive. And if your wife's not alive, it will go to the children and then and parents and, and, and other relatives, cousins, aunts and uncles and that sort of stuff in accordance with the outline that's in the West Virginia law. But that can be very complicated, especially uh, I found in West Virginia because people may have been married multiple times and have 
different relatives and they're scattered and sometimes they don't know if they're even alive or where they live. So it can be rather complex. That's why I normally would tell somebody, write a will. Because you may die um, with a wife and then maybe you have children from a prior relationship or from a couple of prior relationships and how the law is going to divide that up. The law is going to decide and you're going to get no say in it. That's right. right. That's right. So it, it makes a lot of sense to sit down and look at your end of life plans from time to time, not just sit down when you're 30 and, and have it all written out because things change in five to 10 years. So about every five to 10 years, you need to sit down and take a look at all of those documents and make sure that they're up to date with your thinking and how you want to do things. And that could be a challenge. Sure. When I was 30, I'd have given my 1990 Ford Escort to someone. That car is long gone and I have different vehicles since then. But that's just one example of things right. that change, right? I right. have accounts that I didn't have then. I've changed banks. I've changed uh, you know, retirement plans, things of that nature. So right. how often would you say, if you draft a will, how often would you say you should review it? Uh, my gut is five years, every, about every five years, uh, but certainly absolutely every 10 years. Yeah. And that would be review it with an attorney. Should you pull it out, dust it off and see if it still looks uh, sensible once a year or something like that? Yeah. I, well, you know, every couple of years or, you know, at, at, on New Year's, <laughs> thinking, OK, what's happening in the new year? Let's go back and see where all of this stuff is. And uh, the other issue, of course, is if you sell property, if you buy cars and you have, you know, that that those items in your will and you sell them, then I think you need to Note that, and when you have a few of those items, go ahead and redo the will with an attorney so that it's up to date. So as you talk about writing a will, just give us what's a general definition. What is a will? A will is a document that is only effective at the time of death. It must state that you had uh, you, know, you you were doing this of your own free will and volition. And that, uh, and you have, and you should take into consideration what the law requires you to pay in the order it requires you to pay. For instance, funeral expenses and your and your debts. The before it can be other stuff can be distributed. So that's why we say that it's always helpful to have an attorney to look at, at a will and work with you to put it together and understand what your estate. When I say estate, I mean what your property is, if you have real estate, if you have other, you know, uh, summer homes, or if you have property in other states, or have vehicles or machinery, or whatever all of that property is, where is it? And how is it affected on the time of death? Certainly an effect in West Virginia, uh, you can deal with a West Virginia lawyer, but if you have property in California or Florida, you probably need to talk to a Florida or a California lawyer in order to understand how that what's going to happen there when you die and what what you need to have your executor, the person who administers the will, the executor, executrix. Those people will know that they have to go someplace in order to, you know, like California, Florida, if that's where your property is located, 
to find what the legal ramifications are. So is is the executor, is that someone, or the executrix, would that be someone you would put in your will, is this is the person I want to, to handle my will and to administer all these all this property? Yes, and it, it is very helpful that you put a, a secondary administrator, uh, executor, executrix, in the will as well, so that if the person is not willing to or able to do that or has passed, then the, the other person can do it. Now, again, if both people have died and you have not changed your will, then it's up to the court to decide who's going to be the administrator. So that's something you would normally get to select if you draft a will. Now, one of the things West Virginia requires a bond to be posted by someone who's going to administer an estate, whether it's an executor, whether it's an, an administrator, um, can that bond be waived through your will? It can, indeed. And and most people do waive the bond. Um, what We talked about waiving the bond. We talked about appointing your executor. Um, we talked about distributing your property among the people you would want to have it. Are there other things that can be addressed in a will? You can address an awful lot of things in the will. Specific items like silverware or a, a wedding dress or any specific item that you own and it's in your possession at the time of death or that you've given it to be held by somebody. And at the time of death, that can be then transferred to the person holding it or to another person. So if you want grandma's silverware to go to Aunt Bessie, then you better put that in the will. Absolutely. Now, what about your kids? Can you put, can you recommend a guardian for the kids in your, in your will? Certainly. There's a, a lot of things you can do in a will. You can set up trusts for all sorts of things, uh, any type of trust that takes effect only at the time of death and would uh, then you'd be using the um, a property or money that you would have at the time of death. Uh, other ways of doing trust, of course, are establishing the trust prior to your death, and then they are in effect as long as you you know you don't have you don't have a revoke clause in them, and you don't revoke the trust. You can have that trust, and it'll be in effect, and it'll be a non-probate item. So these trusts can be ways to address taxes. They can be ways to address other liabilities, to address your creditors. All of those sorts of things can be addressed through trust. Do I understand that correctly? Uh, yes, they can be uh, run through trust, but normally it, it wouldn't be to benefit creditors. Uh, it would generally be, um, you know, to benefit relatives and other or institutions around you, like um, that you want to you want to set up, but you want to have control over it, um, and therefore you put it in a will because it's not effective until you're dead. Now we talk about a will. What are the requirements of a will? Can I just tell you, Bill, here's my will, my last will and testament. I'm going to write it down. I'm no. going to record it. I'm going to, in the eighties, they used to put it on videos. Like you'd watch a movie and they'd be like, here's my last will and testament on video. A will has to be in writing. Okay. It has to be written. Uh, the best type of will is one that is written, uh, witnessed, and the, the, the witness is um, notarized so that the the court has a notary public in West Virginia that has notarized the will and it can be probated immediately that way. There is another type of will you can do, and that is a will that you write in hand on a piece of paper and it has to be totally in your handwriting and signed by you. Now that can be kind of tricky because if you don't talk to a lawyer about what will should contain, you may confuse people who are trying to deal with 
how you want it to happen. So no disrespect to Brewster's millions, but you can't just videotape your will uh, on your smartphone and say, here's my new will. No. Has to be in writing, has to be some sort of a solemn occasion, witnesses there. Is that correct? Right. I mean, if you want it to be um, probated in the court without any issue, you sort of have to follow the requirements, you know, have it printed out, you sign it, and then have the witnesses sign it and it be notarized. One. And then, then it has to also be the original will. So you need to put it in a safety deposit box or someplace else where it's safe and make sure that the executor and the um, the exec and any others who might succeed to the executor know where the will is so that they can have access to it. If a will cannot be found, you've got a big problem. So if you had a will and you wanted to revoke it, could you just tear it up then? Yes, you can tear it up. You can put the word void on it. Uh, you can scratch all the way through it. Um, any way that, that indicates to you, to somebody that it has been revoked. Um, the best way, I think, to revoke a will is to destroy it. And draft a new one. And draft a new one, correct. Um, um, we used a couple of legal words. We like to use big fancy legal words because we're big fancy lawyers, right? What's the difference between an administrator and an executor? Well, the technical, I mean, they're both, they both do the same, exactly the same thing. Uh, an executor is one named in the will at, by the party. If that person no longer can do it or wants to do it and declines, then the court would appoint an administrator. So we're talked about wills thus far. When we talk about those, we're talking about a, a document that's going to transfer property whenever you die. There's also this other thing called living wills. How, how is that different? Yeah, a living will is where you make decisions on how you want the end of your life to occur. And it will, it will instruct as to when, uh, if you want extra uh, medical attention, or you just, once you've um, past, not to be brought back to life again. Um, all of those issues are, are in a, a living will. As people are terminal, they may be familiar, they may have had family members that were in a terminal illness and they've executed a do not resuscitate order. Would that be an example of a living will? Yes. It, it basically says that the doctors, that you have made the choice and the doctors are not to continue with um, medical assistance in keeping you alive. Now, how does that differ from a medical power of attorney? Well, a medical power of attorney gives a person the authority then to make that decision, depending upon uh, your condition and, the, and what you've told the person and how the person understands the current medical situation to be. So the medical power of attorney would be someone who has the authority to make those decisions. Um, for example, a parent would have that naturally and inherently as it relates to a child, correct? Correct. And then as someone as an adult, then they have that authority themselves. But if they're unable to make that decision, you can nominate someone who can make those decisions at a time that you can't, correct? That's correct. Okay. And you can, if you have a doctor you trust very much, you can give it, you know, you can give that power to a doctor as well. And now, a lot of times people get confused between a medical power of attorney, which deals then only with medical issues, and a durable power of attorney. What's the difference there? The medical power of attorney gives the person authority when you're no longer able to make the decision, whereas a durable power of attorney gives them the power to do whatever you've listed in the durable power of attorney or everything, 
uh, when you want it done. So I, I know uh, service people who, who may go away for a long time and be in combat or something like that. They may have to execute a durable power of attorney for their spouse would be an example. Correct. That way the spouse can file documents on their behalf while they're out of the country. And you could give that to any person, correct? That's correct. Not just a spouse. Now, if they, if you've given someone durable power of attorney, let's say I say, Bill, I want you to start balancing my checkbook for me because it's really a hassle and I'm get tired of doing it. It's math. Math is really, really hard for us lawyers, right? So, Bill, I want you to start balancing my checkbook. I'm going to give you a power of attorney, but I'm only going to limit it to this checking account. Can I do that? Sure. And then I'm going to take that over to the bank. I'm going to tell the bank, hey, I want Bill to start writing checks for me. That's That's the way you would have to do that so that the bank knows that the the signature is authorized. Otherwise, they won't recognize it unless you've shown them and given them the durable power of attorney. So let's say I do that for a couple of months, and then I realize, Bill, you're no better at math than I was. <laughs> it's, just, it's created even more hassle for me now, and I'm going to now not want you to do that anymore. What could I do? Well, it's important that you do two things. One is that you revoke the durable power of attorney and tell the person who has it they no longer have it, and that you notify in writing the bank that that durable power of attorney is no longer in effect. So if I gave a durable power of attorney for all of my affairs, which you could do that, correct? Yes. And then you could have access to retirement accounts. You could have access to selling cars. You could have access to selling real estate, all of those sorts of things, correct? Correct. And then if I wanted to revoke that, I tell the person that I gave that power of attorney to, I want to revoke this, correct? And you do that in writing so that you can show and other people can show that it was revoked. And then you would do that with everyone that you would have any kind of accounts or any kind of property or anything that you might potentially deal with, right? That's correct. But again, you could have a big problem in the sense that you don't remember or you left out or you forgot somebody. The, uh, and that could be a problem. If you forget to notify somebody who has gotten a durable power of attorney from the person holding the durable power of attorney and you didn't know that, um, that can be a, a problem in terms of the person told to do something, and they do it, even though it's been revoked, but the, the person holding the durable power attorney knows they should not have done it and can be held liable. So you could then go after and pursue legally for monetary damages the person who acted as your power of attorney that didn't have the authority to do it. Right, because you have the proof that they were it was revoked before they did that. But you may not be able to hold a third party such as a bank or a real estate agent or something like that liable if they had no reason to believe that you had revoked that. That's right. And that's why it can be a little tricky. So you need to, you know, work well together and understand and try to maintain the records so that you know what's happening. Bill, I think you hit on a lot of the things that we're dealing with today. They can be really, really tricky. And it really is important if you have, if there's any way you can to sit down with an attorney and kind of walk through these issues as to, to what you're dealing with. Today, we were hoping to, to bring people some background and some perspective and kind of educate them a little bit as to how it might help with that conversation with an attorney. And Bill, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you. Um, and again, I think it's extremely important for people to sit down from time to time, look at what they have and the people around them that they want to benefit. Because lives, you, you come into the life having nothing and you leave life with nothing. 
but it's what you do during your life that is important. Our thanks to Bill Saviors for joining us today to talk about estates, wills, living wills, and powers of attorney. We hope you have found this information beneficial. There is no way we could cover your specific situation in this short podcast. You should speak with an attorney as all situations are different. If you need assistance in locating an attorney in your area, the West Virginia Bar offers an online referral service at wvlawyerreferral.org. For more information on this topic, visit legalawv.org. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast, a presentation of Legal Aid of West Virginia.